Good day, and welcome to The Buzz, a bank automation news podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Lorraine Lawson. In today's episode, we're joined by Joe Dewey, a financial services and technology attorney at the international law firm Holland and Knight. He's also a software developer and co-author of The Blockchain, a guide for legal and business professionals. This past year, Dewey worked to help automate documents at Locality Bank, a digital-first community bank based out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The automation uses structured data from Excel or CVS files and maps that to the document templates to create customized and accurate documentation, thus reducing errors. In this podcast, I asked Dewey whether there are potential legal problems to watch out for when automating documents. We also discussed the future of automating contracts via blockchain and smart contracts. So, yeah, I mean, sure, right? I mean, it, but there, and some of them aren't necessarily unique to document auto- automation. Um, they could be, they could be risks anytime you're kind of generating standard documents, um, you know, and, and that could range from, um, you know, regulatory issues or, or enforceability issues around we, we didn't in, include certain, you know, required statutory disclosures or language in this type of document, because, you know, which was required for that product type because we, we started with a base that was a different type of product type and, and we're conforming it. And somebody missed the fact that we needed these, these required disclosures uh, or, um, you know, something like that. But again, that's a risk that's kind of inherent in, in generating, um, you know, the, the, the documents. Now, I will say, you know, a lot of institutions probably use, uh, already have some kind of automation document tools like a laser pro uh, or other commercially available software that they, they might use for certain types of loans. Um, and at a certain below a certain dollar amount or loan size, um, and particularly for loan products that are very straightforward, like unsecured business lines, that software probably is is perfectly fine for them. Um, where where we see the need, uh, or where we see an area of, of improvement, is really that part of the of the loans offerings that either get larger in size. Uh, where you you don't want to rely on just internally generated docs from uh, you know laser pro or the complexity of the deals are such that they don't fit within the boxes that that you get or, or the the parameters from an out of the box solution like laser pro um, and and so that's where we're focusing you know our efforts is again stuff that is a little bit either too big or too complex. Um, to be appropriate for those other types of solutions. Um, but yeah, I mean, and the other thing I would add is you should expect that the development of the templates in this process will be somewhat of an iterative effort. Um, and you should be, you know, constantly doing quality control checks, you know, looking for the errors that undoubtedly might, you know, get introduced somewhere and correcting those. Um, I do think you, you don't want to just take, you know, have an effort, put the templates together, go live and not be looking at and QCing some of the output, particularly early on. Um, because just like any process, there's almost always 
if, if not errors, things that could be improved. Uh, and so I think you want to constantly be evaluating the output in the process to see if there are ways to improve it. And I, I should say here that Locality Bank uh, is in offering services such as commercial banking, commercial real estate lending, SBA lending, business deposit and business treasury services. Uh, and they hope to offer that through a mobile app, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Are there... Yeah. Are there contracts or deal uh, these sort of deals that are just not automatable that banks should not automate? Um, you know, there's probably there's pro- I, I, I'm a believer that there's there's some level of automation is probably could add value to just about any type of product in terms of fully automating a set of documents. Um, there, there are certainly products that might get very bespoke, um, you know, or, or very complicated. Um, you know, I, you might have, you know, very large multi-lender syndicated transactions um, where, um, you know, maybe it may be challenging to come up with standardized templates um, or, you know, uh, things that might be very industry specific deals where you just, it's not possible to have all the types of provisions that might be relevant to a given industry. In other words, like one day you might be financing data centers and you'd want certain provisions in there around, you know, data centers uh, versus a healthcare company where you might have a whole different set of like regulatory type provisions. Um, and now I would, I would, by and large, I think those types of scenarios are going to be um, most commonly encountered at your very large institutions that are doing larger syndicated transactions. Um, but that said, I mean, they're they're even at the, the you know at, at the community bank level with smaller loan loan types. Um, you know, you you very well may from time to time come across a particular borrower in a particular industry that is going to raise issues that aren't baked into your automation solution, uh, which again, I, I, I talk about automating the initial drafts of documents uh, because ultimately those documents may need to be modified by, you know, a human uh, to account for those types of things. Some of which you may not learn until you actually get into the diligence process with the borrower um, or as issues come up that need to be addressed in the documents. Um, so, but, you know, again, so I think for most loan product types, there's, there's a way to, to, to generate, uh, you know, very close final documents in terms of initial drafts. Um, but even in those, you, you, you have to be, um, you have to be aware of the issues that might come up that require revisions to those documents before the loan ultimately closes. Um, I understand you also do work with blockchain and distributed ledger technology. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So I wondered what you see, if anything, Bake's doing with that technology so far. So it's interesting. There, there's, I guess, two ways to look at that, right? There's, um, you know, how are banks leveraging the technology from an infrastructure standpoint and an operation standpoint, um, as well as you know, banks that are 
taking they're, where they're, they're leveraging the opportunities that that industry might provide to them in terms of customers and loan types and things like that. Um, in terms of the infrastructure, you know, there's some, I'd say the larger banks like JP Morgan um, is a great example um, have invested, you know, sums of money on, on studying the technology and developing some of the technology. Um, there's, uh, R3, which is a consortium of financial institutions that, that are working on technology related uh, to blockchain and financial institutions. Um, you know, the LSTA, which is a loan syndication trading association, uh, which is comprised you know, by a lot of Wall Street banks, among others, um, is constantly educating their members on the technology. In terms of actually deployed in the wild, you know, instances of usage, very few. Um, and there's, a, I think, a host of reasons for that. Um, you know, it, it, you gotta, everyone's got to come to agreement on standards. I mean, first, you got to pick which blockchain uh, to the extent you're going to have, uh, you know, multiple institutions leveraging the, the singular network. Um, uh, people have to agree on things as simple as how do we format our data, right? Because right now, most most financial institutions have all of their loan data in some particular format in their system, and it doesn't necessarily talk with anybody else's system, and that's normally okay, right? Uh, but if you want to have a blockchain, people are going to have to to convert or integrate those data formats across an entire industry, which is a which is a very uh, tedious task. There's been talk of a of, and I think there are opportunities to use the technology in AML, KYC uh, efforts in that context. And, and dating back as far as three or four years ago, you know, there were pilots in Canada uh, leveraging the technology with a handful of Canadian banks to, to try to have a system where, you know, if you were vetted from a KYC standpoint with one institution, you'd be pretty much good to go with all the other institutions that were participating in that in that on that network. Uh, but again, you know, there really aren't any large scale deployments of systems like that. Um, in terms of, you know, c- client or business opportunities, um, you know, there are now a number of exchanges like Coinbase, Gemini, BlockFi um, that are, you know, built multi-billion dollar operations that need banking. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the major banks that provide services to that industry is a uh, Silvergate bank uh, in San Diego. Um, and we actually, they're a client of the firm. And, um, and so that, that creates, you know, they have unique products uh, lending against Bitcoin and things like that. Um, uh, but I think a lot of institutions have been historically have been hesitant to, to onboard customers in that space. Um largely I think because it, it creates heightened risks around BSA and, and AML, uh, particularly if you're dealing with exchanges that are money they are money transmitters and other, and heavily regulated institutions. Um, but I think my, or my guess is that many more, many financial institutions today are probably becoming much less hesitant to engage in, in on, or onboarding those types of customers given that crypto is, is, is entering the mainstream, right? I mean, today you've got 
CME issue, you know, options and futures and their, you know, ETFs, um, uh, Coinbase is publicly traded, um, you know, as, as I mean, even Fidelity has, you know, Fidelity digital assets. Um, so as these, as these, as that asset class has become mainstream, um, I think you'll see, you know, more and more financial institutions being willing to, you know, to engage with customers in that, in that business. Um, but in terms of, again, the, the banks using the technology, um, you know, you do have, I think a lot of pockets of R and D and, and people that are focused on, on those, on those issues. Um, but, you know, not a lot of like in production deployments at this point, at least none that I'm, that I'm aware of. No, one of the opportunities that blockchain affords everyone, I guess, is smart contracts. Um, What opportunities do you see for smart contracts when it comes to financial institutions or what drawbacks are there? Yeah. So I I think there's, there's, there's a number of them, right? I mean, there's, um, uh, you, you could envision things like, you know, uh, letters of credit that are, um, that are based on smart contracts where, you know, the whole presentation process, um, you know, could be done automatically. I mean, think of a sort of a, um, uh, standby letter of credit or merchant letter of credit where, um, you know, condition to payment is the goods reach a certain port or destination. Um, you know, you could have a system that when those goods are scanned or, you know, some, somehow there's a digital confirmation of receipt that that, that gets fed into a blockchain that automatically, you know, require that effectively causes the payment transfer to occur. Um, now, some of that, again, traditionally has been, there's been limitations around your ability to actually settle or, or pay uh, on the blockchain, right? I mean, you could, you could, you could, you could affect transactions, but actual settlement and payment needed, it needs to occur off chain because the U S dollars are on the blockchain um, and our fee, you know, that's a different payment rail. Um, that's been changing uh, with the, with the, the introduction of stable coins, particularly, um, you know, fiat or, or uh, you know, other treasury at, you know, backed stable coins um, where, if you and you see, there's you know, USDT, um, the Facebook backed DM coin is one that is you know garnered a lot of attention, and um, uh, those would offer opportunities for people to actually affect settlement um, to the extent that people are are just as comfortable as taking that digital representation of a U.S. dollar because they know it's backed by you know either U.S. cash reserves or 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 say short-term U.S. treasuries. Um, now you could actually affect the settlement and payment via a smart contract on a blockchain. Um, and to the extent you needed to convert the, the stable coins back to fiat, that you, you would have the, the, the comfort, the security to know that it was backed by something and, and specifically pegged to a particular currency. So you, you avoid the, the potential volatility, which I should, I should, should have probably qualified at the beginning. You you could settle smart contracts, but you need to do it in a in a in a 
virtual currency like an ether or something like that, which has traditionally been fairly volatile. And you know, that that poses a lot of counterpart, you know, a lot of risk that many counterparties may not want to take. Uh, but stable coins offer a potential um, ability to avoid that. Um, so uh, and again that that has you know that could have significant implications for trade finance um, you know across the globe. Uh, there are probably some legal issues that still need to get worked out around uh, documents under the UCC and other conventions, but all things that are, you know, very solvable. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there are opportunities. Uh, again, my guess is you'll see, you know, the banks that are at the forefront of um, working with institutions in the virtual currency space uh, probably will have, will be more active in this space initially. Um, but, you know, but again, I, I think um, over time you'll see it, 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 you know, usage expand to other institutions. Uh, again, the biggest issue I see is, is, is coming to, is, is getting the uniformity around these systems that you need. Um, and with, you know, four or 5,000 banks just in the United States alone, um, you know, that can be, that can be problematic. Um, it always seems to come back to the data problem. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's a huge, um, yeah, it's a huge issue. Um, but again, there, there's, there, there are, you know, I, I go back to the AML kind of BSA stuff because I think that is an area where, um, these systems offer the potential for actually being better systems because right now, you know, one of the challenges financial institutions can't disclose customer information to other financial institutions, not without their customer's consent. And so banks doing AML surveillance are largely, you know, they see kind of a narrow window of transactions. They can't see the whole picture throughout the system. And so people who are engaged in, in nefarious illicit activity can take advantage of that. Um, but if, if you had, you know, some kind of distributed ledger system or blockchain technology that would effectively allow, you know, the system to see the big picture without necessarily disclosing, you know, uh, inform customer information uh, to other institutions, um, but rather just kind of flag hits for the appropriate people to look at, whether that's a regulator um, or maybe just the institution who banks that customer, um, you know, that would, that could potentially improve how well we're able to, to, to uh, try to eliminate those kinds of financial crimes. Um, it could potentially also have a, a very big cost savings for some institutions because our current system requires all of those four or 5,000 banks to have their own compliance department, their own AML surveillance systems. There's, there's no mutualization of that effort, even though they're, they're largely all engaged in, with the same goal in mind. Um, and one just has to think that there's a, there is an opportunity to mutualize some of that cost across the banking industry um, and, and push overall compliance costs down for everybody. Um, but again, to your point, I mean, it's the data, right? I mean, every, not everybody, there's so many different formats and, and database structures and ways that institutions can store data that 
it, it can sometimes seem insurmountable to come up with a set of protocols or standards that that would allow all that information to, to be usable by others. You've been listening to The Buzz, a bank automation news podcast. Thank you for your time, and be sure to visit us at bankautomationnews.com for more automation news. You can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Please don't hesitate to rate this podcast on your podcast platform of choice.